Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. This episode is about one of my all-time favorite MCs, Christopher the Notorious B.I.G. Wallace. Big came on the scene like a lightning bolt and sadly died way before his time. It's been 26 years since his tragic, unsolved murder, following the murder six months prior of rapper Tupac Shakur. In this episode of the Backstory Podcast, you'll hear about the life of Christopher Wallace and his pathway to success in the cutthroat rap industry during the genre's most competitive period. I'll also be sharing my first three interviews with the Notorious Big. The first was a few months before the release of his debut classic, Ready to Die. The second was exactly a month after the release of Ready to Die. And the third is sort of like a random conversation I had one night with Big, who happened to be in Philadelphia where I was on the radio at that time. Also, you'll hear from two people very close to the Notorious B.I.G., his mother, Valletta Wallace, whom I interviewed a few years after his death. I mean, you all know Notorious B.I.G., Biggie Small, mm-hmm. Big Papa. I knew Christopher, the warm, loving, generous son who calls me mommy. You will also hear from a very pivotal person in Big's career, the man who discovered him, the legendary DJ Mr. C. And I'll never forget the first time me and Biggie um, met Puff at Uptown Records. And as soon as we got in the office, Diddy had asked Biggie around the spot, I want you to kick a rhyme right now. And Biggie kicked the rhyme. And I can't even remember what the rhyme was, but after Biggie stopped, uh, you know, finished rhyming, Puff was like, yo, I can have a record out on you by the summer. Would you be cool with that? You will also learn why he had to change his name from Biggie Smalls to the Notorious B.I.G. And you'll hear the story behind the death row, bad boy, beef, and the untimely death of Tupac and Biggie. And at the end of this podcast, as a bonus, I will play for you an interview I did with Tupac the night Juice came out. So let's get started. And since this is about Big, he loved hip hop. So I'm going to take you on a ride with a little hip hop history. You see, the intro of Biggie's debut album, Ready to Die, was sort of a hip hop microcosm of his life up to that point. Christopher Wallace was born on May 21st, 1972, a child born into hip hop. Now, the intro of Ready to Die starts with his birth in 1972. Curtis Mayfield's Superfly is playing in the background. At that time in 1972, Superfly was a big song. And Curtis Mayfield was a very inspirational musical force to hip-hop artists. It then segs to 1979, and you hear Rapper's Delight from the Sugar Hill Gang in the background. You hear a man, an actor, portraying Biggie's father, cursing out Valletta Wallace, who was voiced by Little Kim, in the reenactment on the album. They were fighting over a young Christopher and his behavior and what to do with him. It then segs into 1987. Audio 2's classic top villain is playing in the background. As teenage Biggie is plotting, then actually robbing a train full of people at gunpoint. Then it segs to 1993. The shiznit from Snoop Dogg is playing in the background. As Christopher Wallace is being released from jail. And the prison guard reminds him that he will be back. And Biggie proclaims, he, the prison guard... Will never see his ass in here again, famously saying, I got big plans, with a sinister laugh at the end of it. He was actually chronicling his life up until that point through hip-hop. In his first official single, Juicy, from the Ready to Die album, he continued this theme. 
Peep out the first verse on Juicy. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine, Salt and Pepper and Heavy D inside the limousine, hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack, Mr. Magic Molly Mall. I let my tape rock till my tape pop. So let me diagram the first verse of Juicy. We didn't have any internet in the late 80s and early 90s. Word Up magazine are what or was what blogs are today. You learned about hip hop and gossip through the pages of Word Up and Write On magazine. And you had to wait for that one copy every month. Later, it turned into The Source and XXL and some of the other magazines that focused on hip-hop. But what Biggie was talking about was that 80s, late 80s vibe. And then Salt and Pepper and Heavy D were superstars at that time. Rap Attack was one of the first major hip-hop radio shows in New York City on WBLS. The legendary Mr. Magic was a local uh, hip-hop icon on the radio. And every B-boy and B-girl will be locked into his show every weekend, recording it on their cassette tapes. When he says, I let my tape rock till my tape popped. It was your education on hip-hop. Whatever was hot in hip-hop, Mr. Magic and his incredible DJ, Molly Maul, who ended up becoming a major producer, would make sure you heard all about it and you had tapes of all the good moments in your archive. This is what fed a young Christopher Wallace. In the beginning of the movie about his life, Notorious, you see a young Christopher in school reading Word Up magazine with his friend. I had a front row seat to hip hop from the start, and the Notorious B.I.G. was another first generation hip hop kid, patiently studying the game as a fan growing up in the city of its birth watching the first generation of MCs doing it for the culture, rapping in the park, battling other MCs. This was intense competition with no internet, no social media, no gifts, just a bunch of brothers with a mic in their hand. So how did all this start? The roots of hip-hop are Afro-Caribbean. So let me explain. And I'm going to tie all this back, I promise, but I feel like some things people think that they know about, but they really don't know the story. And that's what the Backstory Podcast is all about. So let me tell you. The godfather of hip-hop was a guy named Clive Campbell. He was born and raised in Kingston, Jamaica, and witnessed the massive sound systems at parties in his neighborhoods, which were called dance halls. Then his family emigrated to New York City, specifically the borough of the Bronx, in the late 60s when he was 12 years old. This was a turbulent time in American history, and the Bronx was in decline due to white flight and economic disparity. In previous podcasts, I talked about the Bronx and what was going on and how hip hop was formed out of this energy. Clive was a tall kid and in high school given the nickname Hercules. He hung out with a graffiti crew named the X Vandals and the legend of DJ Cool Herc was born. He loved music and would have back to school parties in the rec room of his apartment building. He set up his first sound system and his after school events will become very popular for teens in the neighborhood since there wasn't anyone catering to them. Herc noticed the turntable set up in discos, which at the time was the music everybody was listening to and what the clubs catered to. He saw how the DJs had multiple turntables, so the music would be continuously played at the club. He came up with the idea of taking two turntables and putting two copies of the same record on those turntables and finding a section of the record or a groove, as they call it. Then going back and forth on both turntables, creating a live loop of this section of the song, which at the time, hip hop dancers or breakers would love the back and forth of the beats. This became what is known as breakbeats. It was immediate art a unique sound that intrigued people because the DJ would get into a rhythm. It was common for people to sit around and listen to a DJ just cutting up breakbeats. 
That is why initially the DJ was the star and the MC, meaning master of ceremony, hosted while the DJ cut it up. Then the MC took it to the next level by rhyming over the DJ's breakbeats. From this burgeoning movement, MCs were labeled rappers. This was the dawning of hip-hop culture. But initially, it wasn't called hip-hop. It was labeled disco rap music because many of the beats used were from disco records. The world was introduced to this Bronx movement in 1979 with the release of Rapper's Delight from the Sugar Hill Gang. Another Bronx DJ, the recently departed legendary Lovebug Starsky, who put out a few records himself, coined this new disco rap music hip-hop based off the first line of Rapper's Delight. And the Bronx was the center of this cultural revolution happening at warp speed. Herc started the movement, but there was another crew forming, the Zulu Nation led by African Bombada, whose birth name was Lance Taylor, who at one point in the early 70s was a gang member in the Bronx. So let me tell you a little bit about gangs. And again, I'm going to tie all this back to Biggie, but I wanted to kind of give you a sense of hip hop, where it came from and what Biggie was absorbing growing up in Brooklyn. If you ever saw the movie The Warriors, which, by the way, is a classic Walter Hill-directed film about gangs, Walter Hill produced the successful Alien franchise movies, and he directed Eddie Murphy in his first film, the classic 48 Hours. The Warriors is a must-view movie if you've never seen it. It really paints the picture of the 70s in New York City. At that time, the city was crime-ridden, broke, and very violent, which is what hip-hop was created out of. The plot of the Warriors movie was very simple. All the gangs from all the boroughs in New York City came together in a park in the Bronx at the request of a gang member or a gang leader named Cyrus. He led the fictional Gramercy Riffs gang, the most powerful gang in the city. He created and made a truce with all the gangs that were fighting in the city and asked them all to bring nine unarmed delegates to a meeting in a park in the Bronx. He had a radical yet diabolical idea to consolidate all the gangs into one gang and take over the city. In his speech that he makes at the beginning of the movie, he says there are 60,000 of us and only 20,000 cops in the city. He said they could handle the mob, the politicians, and Cyrus famously says, you know why? Because we got the streets, suckers. So what does this movie have to do with Biggie or hip hop? I'm painting that picture again of what a kid would be seeing growing up in New York City during that time. However, there is a Biggie connection to this movie that I will get to later. So hold that thought. A majority of the early hip hop artists were mainly from the Bronx, like Sugar Hill Gang, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Treacherous Three and the Cold Crush Brothers. But then there was Curtis Blow, who wasn't from the Bronx. He was from Harlem, and he was the first rapper signed to a major label, Mercury Records. And his first single was the classic Christmas rapping, which went gold, and his follow-up, The Break, sold $1.5 million. By the way, a teenage run from Run DMC was his DJ. In the Notorious movie, you see a young Christopher Wallace rapping the lyrics of The Breaks. These early rappers were cult heroes to a young generation growing up in the economically depressed 70s New York City, continuing into the oppressive Reaganomics era of the 80s. A constant theme here for black and brown kids were a lack of economic opportunities, lack of fathers in the household, lack of social programs and basic things for kids to do. Hip hop was a way to keep busy for many and it transformed lives. 
I think of my own life and career to this point. It was all because of hip hop music. I wanted to do this for a living. It gave me a sense of purpose. It kept me on a positive track. And many artists will tell you the same thing. Those first artists paved the way for the explosive next generation of artists in the early to mid 80s, like Houdini, Run DMC, LL, the Disco 3, who you know is the Fat Boys, Public Enemy, Heavy D, Dougie Fresh, Kumo D. It wasn't just the Bronx creating all this new interesting art. MCs from Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan started to shine. And at one point in the 80s, Two of the best MCs weren't from the Bronx. Rakim was from a small working class town in Long Island named Wine Dance. And a rapper's rapper who inspired a generation of MCs, Big Daddy Kane, was from Brooklyn. And he would have a major influence and connection to a young Christopher Wallace and a young Sean Carter as they both were growing up in Bed-Stuy soaking up all this culture around them. I also mentioned in previous podcasts my background as a child of divorced parents spending a lot of time living between Philly and New York and watching the birth of hip hop myself and how quickly it expanded from one borough to all boroughs to North Jersey to Philly to Hartford to Boston to the rest of the country then to the world but if you lived in New York you had a special connection to hip hop it was a part of your DNA hip hop may have started out as a black and brown art form but in the diverse melting pot of the greater New York City area it was the energy the city fed off of When all the dance clubs, because dance music was also exploding at this time, started to dabble with hip hop, it opened up the genre, not just the B-boys from the Bronx or Harlem or Brooklyn, but wealthy white kids from the Upper East Side, the Upper West Side, from Long Island. Folks of all races gravitated to this movement. Christopher Wallace, student of hip hop, absorbed this energy early, then watched the hip hop paradigm quickly switch to the West Coast, then start to develop roots in the South. At one point in the early 90s, New York was no longer the center of the hip hop universe anymore. But that quickly changed as the decade went on and the economy was different for people of color as the Clinton era began. The whole losing the center of hip-hop universe didn't last that long as the East Coast came back with a vengeance. I've mentioned on previous podcasts, I call this the hip-hop renaissance. I'm talking about Wu-Tang, Nas, A Tribe Called Quest, Leaders of the New School, which birthed Busta Rhymes. And LL was still a dominating force with his Molly Mall produced comeback album, Mama Said Knock You Out. And a young Brooklyn MC would not only help swing the pendulum back East, Biggie Smalls, the notorious B.I.G., would snatch the throne and within a few years become one of the most powerful rappers in the world and become the king of New York. Christopher Wallace grew up in the Clinton Hill section of Brooklyn, which bordered Bed-Stuy. He was the only child of Aletta Wallace, whom was a teacher, and Selwyn George Latour, who was a welder. His father left when he was two years old, forcing Valletta to work two jobs to support her son. In the movie Notorious, they allude to his father being married and lying to his mother. Biggie struggled without his father growing up. He was a good student, especially in English, in which he won a few awards. Here's his mother, Valletta Wallace, in an interview I did with her a few years after his death. Well, I, I knew he was a great writer because when he wrote essays or stuff for school, I always tell him, if you're going to write a story, think of yourself as the story. Mm-hmm. Think of you being in the story. If you're going to write about a mic, think of you as a mic. And this way, you can relate it better. And he, when I read some of his essays, he always get his B's and his A's and A minuses and A plus. A pluses and his excellence. So mm-hmm. I knew he was a very good writer. 
as far as the rap, I taught him a lot. We read a lot when he was a mm-hmm. little boy. Uh, we shared a lot of things together, a lot of stories together. We go to the library together. So um, I wasn't shocked that you know he he was he was such a great writer. I was not shocked. Christopher was six three. He was a large child and was given the nickname Big early on. He started writing rhymes as a kid. He was growing up in a hustler culture. Another thing you'll notice from the movie Notorious, they show him writing rhymes about his father not being around, and he sees all the kids walking through the neighborhood with expensive chains, with the sneakers, with the clothes, all the so-called benefits of the drug culture. Then they show the drug dealers with the expensive foreign cars. This is something many kids all over the country see growing up, and the risk-reward of selling drugs sadly becomes an option a lot of kids take. It was around 12 when Christopher started dealing drugs in his neighborhood. His mom, Valletta, talking about those tough years. As a parent, I yelled a lot, but I, my yelling was because I cared for him, because I loved him, because I wanted something good for his future, because I did not like the station in, in which he was traveling. Mm-hmm. And mothers do that. Fathers do that. It was not an easy road, but thank God he turned back. I punched a lot. I hit a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hit a lot. And basically, that was that's what it is. But it was a lot of love. He never lost respect for me. Mm-hmm. He never, never lost respect for me. Like so many kids growing up, especially in single-parent households, there's a lot of time away from parents. And they have no idea what their kids are doing. By age 17, Christopher was a full-fledged drug dealer, bagging his own drugs and selling them. He also learned that his teenage girlfriend was pregnant. A lot on the plate of a young man and a very dangerous profession. His mother had no clue to what extent he was doing until later years. Going back to the movie Notorious, which I suggest you watch after listening to this podcast, you could see that his mother was very strict and kept a tight leash, or so she thought. Young Christopher was leading a double life, one way around his mom, but once out of her sight, he was another person. There is a scene in Notorious that shows him cutting cocaine and his mom walks in the room. He hides the drugs, which are on a plate under the bed, and he acts like he's praying. Then, on the way out of the house, as he was going to school, he was dressed a certain way in front of his mom, but then he goes to the roof, where he has a stash of clothes, chains, and a firearm. The moment his mother realizes he's a drug dealer is their conversation a little bit later on when she thinks that plate under his bed was old mashed potatoes and throws it away, and he panics because that was his work. Here, his mother talks about learning about his criminal activity. What he did, he did out on the street, he hid it. Many of the things that he did, he also hid it. I found out a lot of things about my son after he passed away and when he became a rapper. Mm -hmm. Through his rhymes? Through his rhymes, and not only through his rhymes, but some of the stories. I asked him about the stories. And he would say, Mom, I just want to sell some records now. Just relax, just cool, just remember, don't read. Because what I'm doing right now is not for anyone over 35 years of age. (laughs) Christopher's place of business was Fulton Street in Brooklyn. It was those long days on the corner selling drugs where his best friend D-Rock encouraged him to drop rhymes. He was building a neighborhood reputation as a good MC. His rhymes would be so good he would draw crowds. And one day, another local rapper who heard about him challenged Christopher to a battle. And what is funny about it is this local rapper, when he first took a look at Big, he thought, how could this fat kid rhyme? But boy, was he wrong. Here is a 17-year-old notorious B.I.G. in this infamous battle on Fulton Street in the Bronx. 
So go to YouTube and peep out this battle and check out the old school mic they were using. It looked like a gun. It was clear early on that Big had presence and was a masterful lyricist. In 1989, he was arrested on weapons charges and put on probation. He then violated that probation. And then a year later, on a drug run in North Carolina, he was arrested and spent nine months in jail. It was that time in jail where he focused on writing rhymes. This was the beginnings of the creation of Rhymes for Ready to Die. He would name himself Biggie Smalls after the character played by Calvin Lockhart in the 1975 film Let's Do It Again. Here's some more homework, especially for any film buffs and young people that may not know this. Bill Cosby and Sidney Poitier did a series of movies in the 70s which showcased their amazing chemistry. It was black cinema gold. Between 1974 and 1977, Cosby and Poitier teamed up for three classic films, Uptown Saturday Night, Let's do it again and piece of the action. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Now, there's really always been a void of black films, and for many black actors, not a lot of opportunities. These films with Cosby and Poitier showcase all of the best black actors of those times, and they were very successful films. So you should check them out when you get a chance. But in the movie Let's Do It Again, Christopher Wallace connected with the character Biggie Smalls, and that was his rap name. Upon his release from jail, Christopher put together his first demo tape. He was a new father and wanted to focus on music. Enter DJ Mr. C, who was a Bed-Stuy Brooklyn celeb, I mentioned earlier that Big Daddy Kane was Brooklyn's most respected and famous MC, and Mr. C was his DJ, and they toured all over the world. Here is DJ Mr. C talking about the first time he heard Big. Um, the first time that I heard B.I.G., um, I actually met Biggie through his first DJ, 50 Grand. 50 Grand was a uh, DJ that I grew up with um, in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And um, at the time, I was DJing for Big Daddy Kane, going on tour with Kane. And um, 50 Grand told me that he had this kid from Fulton Street, which was right up the street from where me and 50 Grand lived in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, that he had this kid named Biggie. The notorious Biggie Smalls, that was his name at the time, and um, that he had this kid's music uh, that he wanted me to hear. Um, at the time, I was getting ready to go on tour with Big Daddy Kane, so I told 50 Grand, listen, I come back from tour September 23rd. I'm just making up a date of when I told 50 Grand when I was coming back. But whatever date I told 50 Grand I was coming back, that night, 50 Grand was in front of my house with the Biggie cassette. And I will never forget the first uh, demo I heard of Biggie. It was actually, um, well, was so ironic. It was a basement demo from 50 Grand's house, and the first rap that I heard from Biggie was him rhyming over the original sample that me and Big Daddy Kane used for Ain't No Half-Stepping, one of our biggest hit records. It, um, the song was called Blind Alley by the Emotions, and Biggie rapped to that uh, that track. I can remember the rhyme like it was yesterday. 
Microphone murderer, mass made hem maker. B.I.G. is on the mic called The Undertaker. Make an appointment, schedule an interview because you know what big man's about to do. So when I heard that and then the rest of the rhyme to it, I was like, yo, we got to do something with this kid. Now, they recreated the demo in the Notorious movie, but you know how we do here on the Backstory Podcast. Here is the original Raw demo. Yo, we got DJ 50 Grand, Big D, RC, Amp Money. And the undisputed B.I.G., that's me. A whole lot of niggas want Big to make a demo tape, especially that dumbass nigga R. This going out to you, nigga. Recognize your 50. What's this? Demo, demo, demo. Oh, murder up, mass made, hell maker. B.I.G.'s on the mic, call the undertaker. Make an appointment, schedule an interview. Because you know what big man's about to do? 50 grand on the technique. At the right peak, brothers want to hear the words big man speak. The microphone, I'm ripping. The burn, I got the clipping. Climbing up seats, that's how he's Sipping on old gold, coal is the rhyme to stole. Puffing on dime bags, and I've been told. My words are harder than a Brick times a risk, my dick, a thick stick, and my dick makes me sick when you piss the wick, rap, prom, G. You get what you pump with a tick, tack, comp, see. The B.I.G. moves swifter than a ninja. Even a sneak up shop, the master ninja. Keep my eyes open and the case closed. No eyewitnesses, no nature exposed. Just a heavy set one with a big gun and a sweet tongue shaking down everyone. Look like Michael Jackson, kicks like Will Jackson, bitches like Freddie Jackson. No need to ax in the crew. Oh, no frontin', no fakin'. As you can hear, Christopher Wallace, newly minted as Biggie Smalls, had raw talent. Enter Sean Puffy Combs, another first-generation hip-hop kid from Harlem, raised in the New York suburb of Mount Vernon, which was right outside of the Bronx. Sean's dad was murdered when he was two, and his mother moved the family out of Harlem. He graduated from one of the best private schools in the city. He then went on to Howard University in D.C., securing an internship at Uptown Records, which was started by industry veteran Andre Harrell. Andre was the former rapper Dr. Jekyll from the short-lived group Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They had a hit record back in the day called AMPM. And Andre, after his career as an artist, stalled, went to college, and along the way met Russell Simmons and started on his path to a more behind-the-scenes role working at Def Jam. He rose to vice president and general manager within two years. It was at that time when Def Jam exploded as the premier hip-hop label with the best roster in the business. And Andre left to start his own label, Uptown. Records. I also mentioned in the LL podcast, if you watch Crush Groove, you'll see Andre Harrell in the room in LL's first scene. He was actually part of the people that were judging new artists for Def Jam. 
1988, MCA Records was looking to get a seat at the table in the very popular urban space. Hoping a little Def Jam luck would rub off on them, they offered Andre Harrell a label deal. Another uptown success story was R&B singer Albie Shore and the R&B group Guy. On the strength of those three artists, Uptown Records was a major player in urban music, and it happened quickly. Andre had two artists on the bench that were both doing background work for other artists on the label. And Andre discovered Puff and gave him his internship while Puff was at Howard. So Puff, who y'all know as Diddy now, would be on the Amtrak train going back and forth from New York to his internship. But on the side, Puff was a promoter doing all kinds of parties at Howard and along the East Coast. And I got to give kudos to Andre Harrell because he did what many people in power would never do. Bring a young cat in the circle and feed off that energy. It was clear that Puff had an ear to the streets. And a lot of people in power don't necessarily like that kind of energy. And that's what made Andre Harrell different. It was obvious that Puff was special. He had been in music circles for years. If you go to YouTube, search Dougie Fresh Summertime video, and you'll see a young Sean Combs dancing in the video. Puff was destined for success in the music business because he had so much confidence and swagger. To some, it was a turnoff, but to Puff, he had blinders on, and he was a bull in the china shop. You will never deny his presence in anything. And Puff saw something special in those two artists on the bench. One was Jodeci, and they were a group of two sets of brothers from Charlotte, North Carolina. They had a 29-song demo and saw what was happening at Uptown Records, so they drove to New York unannounced to get a meeting with Andre so he could listen to their demo. They stepped out on faith and made their way to the label and got that meeting, and Andre asked them to perform on the spot. They performed Come and Talk to Me and I'm Still Waiting. Heavy D, who was a superstar at the time, overheard them and told Andre that he needed to sign them immediately. And, of course, he did, and assigned his star intern, Sean Combs, to work with them. That ended up being one of the best moves of his career and the launching pad for Puff. At the time, Boys to Men, who I knew personally from my days in Philadelphia, were the biggest male R&B group in the world. They were clean-cut, neat, huge crossover success. They were the kind of boys you bring home to mother. Puff, who again kept his ear to the street, wanted the opposite of that. Tim's baggy jeans, sex appeal, and unleashed Jodeci as the bad boys of R&B. And boy, did those guys like the party. And it was Puff's idea to remix a few of their songs, and that changed their trajectory immediately. That other artist on the bench was a background singer named Mary J. Blige, and he unleashed the same magic on her. At 21 years old, Sean Puffy Combs was on top of the world as the man responsible for Jodeci and Mary J. Blige, who were both unprecedented successes on a national stage. So this Biggie demo tape, and you heard the rawness of it a few minutes ago, was floating around every label in New York City. And he was being featured in a very popular unsigned hype column in the Source magazine. The Source magazine was hip hop's Bible at that time. You wanted a five-star review, and some of the biggest, most classic albums in history got five stars in the Source magazine. But the unsigned hype column was sort of like, here's an artist you need to look out for. Here's somebody that's not signed to a label. So let me tell you some of the alumni of the unsigned hype column. DMX, Common, Eminem, Mob Deep. Shout out to Maddie C. from The Source, who had an awesome ear and was responsible for picking these artists to be in the column. 
Here is DJ Mr. C discussing how Biggie got his deal. So I was actually attempting to try to do a Mr. C album. I had a five-song demo on my album, and one of the songs was called Biggie Got the Hype Shit. And um, when I would submit the five-song demos to these record labels, they didn't care about Mr. C album. All they cared about was who was this guy named Biggie Smalls that made this song called Biggie Got the Hype Shit that I was shopping as my five-song demo. So the Mr. C album kind of turned into people wanting to sign Biggie because of the song that I did for my album. Um, so like I said earlier, I had got offers from Def Jam and Jive um, or, or whatever. But while those offers was coming in, a guy named Puff Daddy, who was A&R at uh, Uptown Records with Andre Harrell, was looking for the next, you know, big rapper. And he went to Maddie C with the Source magazine and asked Maddie, you know, who's like the best rappers you got for the unsigned hype? And Maddie was like, yeah, I got this guy called the Notorious uh, Biggie Smalls and the Hitman 50 Grand. And the first thing that Puffy asked Maddie was, how he look? <laughs> and Maddie was like, yo, he ain't the best looking rapper, but he, he's nice on the mic. And so Puff asked Maddie, how can I find him? Maddie was like, yo, you got to contact Mr. C. You know, back then, that's when we had those 1-800 Sky pages, and I got a Sky page number for me to call back, and it was Diddy that I had to call back, and he wanted to set up a meeting with um, me and Biggie and kind of start talking about if he's interested in signing Biggie, and I'll never forget the first time me and Biggie met Puff at Uptown Records, and as soon as we got in the office, Diddy had asked Biggie around the spot, I want you to kick around right now. And Biggie kicked the rhyme. And I can't even remember what the rhyme was, but after Biggie stopped, uh, you know, finished rhyming, uh, Puff was like, yo, I can have a record out on you by the summer. Would you be cool with that? And Big was like, yo, talk to C, man. Whatever C say, talk to him. Or, you know, talk to him. And then one thing led to another, and, and we Biggie was originally signed to Uptown Records. Um, he, he There was no bad boy at the time. He was signed to Uptown. But then when Puffy left Uptown, coincidentally at the same time, Biggie got dropped from Uptown after Puff left Uptown because Biggie had did a song called Dreams of Fucking an R&B Bitch, if you remember that record. And when Biggie did that record, you know, if you remember that record, he was talking about having sex with different artists at the time, like Patti LaBelle and Raven Simone and, you know, Escape, you know, a different female R&B singers that was out at the time and some of them R&B singers was actually signed to MCA so the chairman the owner of MCA can't remember his name but he wanted Biggie to get dropped off the label because he was disrespecting some of the female R&B singers that was on MCA and that's how Biggie got dropped from MCA but then coincidentally the same time he got dropped was around the same time that Puff left MCA so Puff just basically signed Biggie to bad boy Arista and then, you know, the Ready to Die album was recorded. The first time I heard about Big was in late 1992. Heavy D released his Blue Funk album that December. It was considered a more harder Heavy D after he was coming off some huge pop successes with melodic, friendly songs. One particular song he had on the album was called A Bunch of Niggas. And it featured the late guru from Gangstar and a young, notorious B.I.G. And he shined on this feature. In early February 1993, I went out to San Francisco for the Gavin Convention. This is a major music industry convention for radio and records for all formats. I got to shout out my fam, Tembisa Mshaka, who was the rap editor at Gavin. Y'all need to follow her on Instagram. She's doing big things and follow her on social media. 
She was responsible for bringing us all together, the labels, the rappers, and the radio folks every year. And Uptown Records was hot, so you paid attention to what they were doing, especially the golden child, Sean Puff Daddy Combs. It was during that convention my man Dan Smalls, who worked at Uptown, gave me the Biggie Smalls mixtape. On his mixtape was two songs that stood out, The What featuring Method Man and Dreams, his ode to R&B singers that offended many, as you heard DJ Mr. C, which led to his release from Uptown Records. I cleaned both songs up and started to play them on my show, and the buzz started to build on the East Coast about this new MC. Puff, as always, was strategic with Big, putting him on a Supercat remix for Dolly My Baby. Supercat was a very popular artist at that time, and his remix was the look that Biggie needed. I'm saying, I, I hit everybody off with everything. Everybody like party joints. I got some party joints. Right. I got some joints for the honeys, for the thugs. It's just some universal stuff, you know? Okay. Mary J. Blige did a remix for Supercat as well. And then going back a year, in the summer of 1992, Mary J. Blige released her classic debut album, What's the 411? In 1993, she did a remix album of What's the 411, and Biggie was featured on Real Love Remix and What's the 411 Remixes. Biggie's verse on the 411 Remix is a recreation of his controversial Dream song, but a less racy version. So I suggest if you've never heard the Dream song, which you probably should have heard, you should listen to that and then listen to that remix of What's the 411 and you'll see the adjustment. I met Big for the first time at the Jack the Rapper convention in Atlanta in 1993. This was the annual gathering of black music executives, radio executives and talent, label artists. Everybody would come to this event. If you were looking for a deal or a job in radio, this is where you would come. All kind of opportunities would happen at the Jack the Rapper convention created by the late legendary radio and record man Jack Gibson. And in the late 80s, as urban music began to expand into hip hop, the convention changed dramatically. I had gone to this convention two years previous to 1993 and it was mostly an R&B thing. In fact, they would just kind of keep hip hop at night and just like have very few hip hop um, events. But 1993 was different. I mean, Death Row Records was the dominating force in hip hop music from the West Coast. Why? Behind Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. And there was a panel this particular year that best showed the direction of urban music. It was the Young Guns versus the Old Heads or something like that. That was the title. I can't remember what it was. But I do remember Suge Knight and Puff were on this panel. And actually, people don't really notice that Suge and Puff were actually cool at first. And, and again, I may be wrong on this. But the way the story goes is that Suge encouraged Puff to go out on his own because he was a driving force behind Uptown's biggest successes, Mary J. Blige and Jodeci. And I do remember there was some issue with Suge Knight because Jodeci and Mary J. Blige had really bad deals at Uptown, and he wanted to manage them, and he wanted them on death row. And so I think a little of that was sort of like to screw with Uptown. But, but again, I'm, I'm just guessing, but I'm trying to remember what was happening at that time. So back to this panel, there were several established black music executives. I remember uh, Hank Caldwell, who was a, a major executive at that time. He was on the panel, as well as another respected black music executive, Hiram Hicks, who I knew personally from his Philly roots. In fact, when I started in radio, um, Hiram Hicks was a station photographer. That's how he got into the business. And he ended up having so much success in artist management and he ended up running his own label. So this panel was an interesting mix of people that had success and then young success. So you can imagine the panel was a little uncomfortable to watch because Suge was so disrespectful. He really didn't have any respect for the older executives, kind of had a little disdain for him. And he just bowled over everybody 
on this panel like the bully he was. Puff was soft-spoken but very confident. Also at this convention in 1993, there was underlying beef between Death Row and Uncle Luke. You may recall in the song Dre Day, they took shots at Luke And then Luke came back with a song. It was really no competition musically. Death Row handled that. However, the tension was building between them, and it came to a head at the Marriott Marquis Hotel in Atlanta when Luke pulled up with 50 dudes from Miami, and all hell broke loose in the lobby with Death Row. I recall standing to the side watching it all unfold with a young Biggie and a few of his friends watching as well. And this was the first time I met him. And that was my last Jack the Rapper convention which moved to Orlando the next year, but it had lost its luster. So anyway, back to Big. That spring, he dropped his first official single, Party and Bullshit, off the Who's the Man soundtrack. This was an ode to a young black kid's party experience in the 90s and wanting to keep his gun on him just in case. You would go to parties and dudes would fight. It would be at college, you would be in a hood. There was always brothers fighting over nothing. And at times, gunfire would ring out. Not much different today. The Who's the Man movie was a big deal in 1993, starring Ed Lover and Dr. Dre from Yo! MTV Raps. They were also radio personalities in New York on Hot 97. This movie featured a who's who of current hip-hop stars. And for an artist like the Notorious B.I.G., to be on the soundtrack was a great introduction to the country. Party and bullshit connected with people, and Big started to do shows. His lyrics and delivery stood out. It was a great introduction for him. Two parts of the song that stood out. Now, I want you all to listen carefully to the lyrics. I was a terror since the public school era. Bathroom passes, cutting classes, squeezing asses. Smoking blunts was a daily routine since 13, a chubby nigga on the scene. I used to have the trade deuce and the deuce deuce in my bubble goose. Now I got a Mac in my knapsack, lounging black, smoking sacks up in axe. And sidekicks with my sidekicks rocking fly kicks. So to translate that, he used to have a 32 pistol. Then he had a 22 pistol. Then he had a Mac 10 in his knapsack. What? Here's some other lyrics from that song that just stood out. Hugs from the honeys, pounds from the roughnecks. Seen my man see that I knew from the projects. He's talking about Mr. C. Said he had beef. Asked me if I had my piece. Sure do. Two twenty twos in my shoes. Holla if you need me, love. I'm in the house. Roam and stroll and see what the honeys is about. Moet popping, ho hopping, ain't no stopping. Big Papa, I'm a bad boy. This guy was so lyrical and he didn't write anything down. Jay-Z was the same way, just coming up with stuff off of the top of their head. So I like to know what was in the water in Bed-Stuy because not many rappers could make stuff up like that and turn them into major songs. Biggie was brilliant with his stage presence. And Party and Bullshit, there's a break in the middle of the song. So it kind of stops, right? Because it's sort of like this confrontation. And Big was brilliant with his stage presence. So as he performs the song, there are like 20 dudes dancing on stage with him. And then in the middle of the song, he says, then a fight breaks out. And all of a sudden, the dudes on stage start fighting each other. The crowd doesn't know that this is staged and it looks bad like a brawl. And as they're going back and forth, hitting each other, pushing each other, people in the stands are like, oh, my God, what's going on? 
He steps in front of everyone and says, yo, chill, yo, chill. They stop fighting. And then he just continues the song and sets it off with the Rodney King line. Can't we just all get along? Big was a straight hardcore artist. And DJ Mr. C kind of alluded to the struggle behind the scenes with that hardcore image and what it would take to be successful. Biggie was definitely on his way. All that Puff promised him was happening. What we didn't know, though, at that time was how hard it was for Big to stop hustling. And Puff kept trying to keep him on the right path. There was a scene in Notorious where Puff pleaded with Big to stay off the streets. Puff signed him to Bad Boy through Uptown and things looked good. And it was in 1993, actually before that Young Gun panel that I was telling you about just kind of happened right before that. Andre had enough of the young, brash, arrogant Puff and fired him. Big was dropped as well from Uptown Records because some arrogant executive at MCA Records who didn't see the value of keeping Big because of the little controversy about dreams, Diddy needed to regroup. And again, he pleaded with Big to trust him and stay off the streets. Biggie did not and got caught with a gun charge along with his close friend D-Rock, who actually was the person who turned him onto the drug game. You can see all of this in the movie Notorious. It was in police custody where one of the most pivotal moments of Biggie's career occurred. The gun was Biggie's. He's the one that tossed it. And because of his previous convictions and charges, he was facing five to seven years, which have, which would have probably ended his pursuit of a rap career. And the artist we all know as a notorious B.I.G. probably wouldn't have happened. The police gave Big and D an ultimatum. One of them was going down for the gun. D-Rock, realizing the life-changing potential of Big, took the charge. Big went on a straight and narrow after that moment, and D-Rock was a G for life. Also during that time, Big was under tremendous pressure as his mother battled breast cancer. Diddy kept his promise to get a new deal, and he put his roster together of Craig Mack and the notorious B.I.G. and went to legendary label head Clive Davis, and they got a label deal through Arista, and Bad Boy was in business. By the way, Clive Davis historically always took chances on black artists, black executives, black producers. He was the one who gave Gamble and Huff their deal back in the day for the Sound of Philadelphia Records. He was the one that signed Earth, Wind & Fire. He, meaning Clive Davis, had an eye for talent and would never let talent go by him. So the bad boy deal was on. First out the gate was Craig Mack with a song called Flavor In Your Ear, which was an instant hit. Biggie released Juicy as his first single with the primo produced Unbelievable on the B-side with the illest sample of R. Kelly's Your Body's Calling. That summer, R. Kelly had put out his second album, 12 Play, and it was a monster song. So this sample was right on time. Juicy was Biggie's life story in a nutshell with the melodic m 2 Me sample. It was a great introduction song, and the video came out later that summer. They filmed the video in the Hamptons in a mansion, and visuals helped propel the song. His mother, Valletta Wallace, talking about Juicy. I was really listening to it, right. and I heard the words on it. Mm-hmm. I guess that's when he said he was. Uh, he gave me a mink and um, I had my, my car. Right. And I said to him, as a matter of fact, there was a part in the in the music that I never understood. Right. And I asked him, I thought he was saying that my hallway was pissy. Mm-hmm. And I yelled and screamed <laughs> at him, him. And his friend Damien said, Ma, he's talking about a drink. He's saying halazé. <laughs> I didn't even know what halazé was. But when I listened to that and listened to the story he was telling and how he really put that story together... Mm-hmm. I said, darn, he's a really talented young man. In the movie Notorious, 
Big and his boys thought Juicy was too soft of an approach because Big was a hardcore rapper. Famously in the scene, you could see his boys laughing as Puff played the m 2 song Juicy Fruit. But Puff, the master strategist and businessman, explained radio and how he needed to deliver a song that got airplay. He told Big that he could be hard on the B-side, but he needed that radio airplay. So Juicy Unbelievable started to build in the summer of 1994. This is my first formal interview with Biggie. It was July 23rd, 1994, two months before the release of Ready to Die. I didn't have to wait until the album came out because Puff gave all the DJs an early advance of the album months in advance. So I was very familiar with it. And you'll hear in the interview, I'm so comfortable I'm talking about the album, but the people didn't hear the album yet. We discussed Juicy, Unbelievable, his compromise on R&B sounding songs, the R. Kelly sample. This was so early in his career. The Juicy video wasn't even out yet, but the song was building on mix shows around the country. Got a shout out to Puff's man and a good friend of mine, Harv Pierre. He has worked with Puff from the beginning, and he was the one that set this interview up. You'll notice I had to correct myself when calling him Biggie Smalls because he had to change his name to the Notorious B.I.G. And I'll explain why. But here is my first interview. But in the studio, it's my man, the Notorious Big. That's right. The real deal, Biggie Smalls. No question. What's up, man? Welcome. That's right. Because there's some some corny uh, guy going around saying he's Biggie Smalls. And we'll get into that in a minute. But anyway, welcome to Philadelphia. What's going on? The man, Biggie Smalls. I've heard so much about you. And you've been been around for a couple years. Yeah. Down with Puff Daddy, and you're the first artist to come out on this brand new label. Well, you and Craig Mack, no doubt. And uh, first of all, last summer you had to join on the uh, soundtrack for Who's the Man, yeah. Party and Bull, and now you're coming with your brand new album, which is called What? Ready to Die. Okay. Now tell everybody a little bit about where you coming from, because I listened to the beginning of your album, and you kind of uh-huh. chronicle hip hop in the beginning of your album uh-huh. and your life and how you came to to what it, you know what's going on now. So tell everybody what happened or what's going it's just, on. It's just basically a life story, you know what I'm saying? Just I just laid everything that I experienced or witnessed, you know what I'm saying? And my days on the streets and just laid it on some on some wax, you know. Okay. Just keeping it 100 percent real, you know. Okay. So. um You've been down with this hip-hop thing for, for a long time because you had on there, you had on, uh, I guess it was Rapper's Delight in the background or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you've, been, you've been dealing with this for a long time. I mean, yeah, you know, listening to it, mm-hmm. definitely, all my life. So how'd you hook up with Puff Daddy and, and you know, get down like that? Um, my boy tried to get me on this um, Source, Source Magazine album, mm-hmm. and um, Puff bumped into the guy that was organizing that and told me he was looking for a hardcore artist, and mm-hmm. he just put me on, and it was just on from there. Oh, okay. Now, how long ago, how many years ago was this? That was like two years ago. And you did your first song with Mary J. Blige, right? Yeah. You were rapping on her, on yeah, her joint? the Real Love Remix. Okay. All right, so now this album that's about to come out, um, what... I've already, I've already heard, already uh-huh. heard it. We're gonna jump into your first single off your album, yeah, which is yeah. Juicy. Just make sure you and play the B side too. Yeah, oh well, we're gonna uh, get to Unbelievable yeah. too in a minute because yeah. my man took the straight R. Kelly sample. But like I said, we'll get to that. Let's talk about Juicy. First yeah. of all, the cut that you sampled—that's one of my all-time favorite cuts uh-huh. right there, Juicy Fruit. So okay. yeah, that's the Fat Joint by M. Toomey. What's Juicy all about? Because you make statements in the in a record about your life. So. Yeah, just the rags, the riches joint. You know how it was all bad, but now it's all good. Okay. You know? Now, let's talk about Unbelievable, which is the B-side to, to uh, Juicy, and what's Unbelievable all about? 
it just was, you know, we were traveling crazy, you know what I'm saying? And we was having problems with dropping Juicy as the first single, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Because it was just so radio, and I didn't really want to, you know, right. hit like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we compromised, and they told me I could do a new joint right. on the side. You know, it's not going to be on the album, just mm-hmm. a raw, uncut joint. It's told me it's to do my thing, so mm-hmm. I was hyped, and I got a dope producer, my man Primo. Right. Gangstar. Right, Premier. He did Went up in there. Got the blunts and the beer. Let's do our thing. And I'm, I like to join a lot. A lot of, a lot of people like it. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. A few weeks after that interview, I went to Atlanta for a special event celebrating Outkast's platinum of their debut album. It was a barbecue in suburban Atlanta and a who's who in hip hop attended. Big and Puff performed on stage. And that video is out there as well on YouTube. You need to uh, check it out. They had both had a lot to drink and they performed unbelievable and their own little version of it. And of course, they shut it down. It was an industry event, and Big and Puff rocked the crowd like it was a normal show. A must-view video. Go ahead and find it online. So that interview was in July of 1994. And shortly after I did that interview, Bad Boy dropped the Flavor in Your Ear remix, which featured a young legend in LL Cool J, along with a bunch of new artists, or relatively new artists. You had Busta Rhymes, you had Rampage the Last Boy Scout, and of course, the Notorious B.I.G. Puff was always strategic with remixes. They were like movies to him. He was the conductor, and his Hitman production crew played the instruments. Remember in the Notorious movie, I talked about Puff's passion that forced Big to do Juicy when Big's gut told him that that was not the way to go. Puff was always thinking like that. I mean, he put ODB on Mariah Carey's Fantasy Remix which opened ODB up to a whole new audience, and the record became a monster hit. What made Puff a genius was his penchant for the unconventional. Could you imagine the meeting with Mariah? I'm going to take the wildest, most out-of-control member of the hardest street group and put them on a song with the princess of pop music with her legion of general market fans. ODB opens up the remix saying, Keeping it real, son. Another part of Puff that sets him apart from everybody else is authenticity. And hip-hop being authentic is everything. And if hip-hop remixes were Pinocchio, then Puff was the Geppetto. He was the best, hands down. I mean, he put Wu-Tang on a remix with SWV, which, from a group perspective, they were so far apart. I mean, at that time, SWV was like a bubblegum R&B group that had several songs, but this collabo changed their trajectory. Puff took one of Method Man's hardest songs on his debut album, Takao, All I Need. Now, what I want you to do is go ahead and find All I Need, the original version from Method Man. It's a RZA-produced, grimy, New York City, East Coast banger. RZA was the king of these type of songs. In comes Puff. He flips the track and adds Mary J. Blige. Now, off the bat... Puff's track is definitely not as hard as the RZA original, but he drops in the line of one of Big's hardest songs, Me and My Bitch, and lays this line into the track. Lie together, cry together, I swear to God, I hope we fucking die together. Then Puff paints a modern day version of Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, and All I Need was a smash song. It helped Method Man gain a whole new audience of women who maybe weren't inclined to listen to his album or a Wu-Tang album. It gave Mary that continuous stamp of queen of hip-hop soul. In the 90s, Puff was the master of the remix. 
I mean, it was Puff's idea early in Jodeci's career to remix Come and Talk to Me with a hip-hop vibe, and that is what made the song explode and pushed them to superstardom. A lot of people don't know this, that Jodeci's album was out almost a year before Puff started flipping songs on it. So back to Flavor in Your Ear. Up until that point, Puff strategically placed big on some huge records, building his name as an up-and-coming artist over the previous two years. Flavor in Your Ear was already a hit. Big Song Juicy was out, but it wasn't a runaway hit yet. But Puff, knowing the potential of Big put him on the remix for Flavor in Your Ear and had him open the song up. Now, remember, I told you about the Warriors movie and its connection to hip-hop and Biggie. In a major scene in the Warriors movie, one gang was taunting the Warriors using empty Coke bottles, having them in in this finger, and clicking them together, yelling, Warriors, come out to play! So Puff... Being the hip-hop person that he was, flipped the intro of Flavor in Your Ear remix to Bad Boy, Come Out and Play, and unleashed Biggie on the first verse, and Big delivered a message to all of hip-hop that he was a new sheriff in town, and his name is Notorious B.I.G. Listen to these lyrics. Foes is shaking in their boots. Invisible bullies like the Gooch disappear. Vamoose, you're whack to me. Take them rhymes back to the factory. I see the gimmicks, the whack lyrics. The shit is depressing. Pathetic. Please forget it. You're mad because my style you're admiring. Don't be mad. UPS is hiring. If you haven't had a chance to listen to my Jay-Z, The Making of a Businessman podcast, which was my first podcast in the backstory, I spoke about the swag Jay-Z had early on calling out other rappers. He probably got some of that from Big. Because see, Big knew he was a superior lyricist, Jay-Z as well, and wanted everybody to know that he had been watching, taking notes, and now was ready to take over. Well, in this Flavor in Your Ear remix, it's exactly what Big is doing. LL also delivered a gem of a verse, but the Flavor in Your Ear remix was a big welcome Biggie moment. Larger audiences now paid attention to this new MC. Then simultaneously, the juicy video dropped and the song exploded quickly. No doubt that Craig Mack had a hit debut single and remix, but Biggie was the real story at Bad Boy, and he quickly became the most anticipated artist literally two weeks before his debut album was coming out. And on September 13th, 1994, Ready to Die was released. Most hardcore hip-hop fans scooped up the album first. I had been talking about this album for two months, and I was glad people could finally hear it. I was actually riding around Philly in my car playing this album Uh, This cassette that I had way in advance because I just loved it. It was my favorite album that summer. And finally, the people got a chance to hear it. What people loved about Big was his storytelling. Songs like Things Done Change, Machine Gun Funk, Everyday Struggle, and the graphic Gimme the Loot, which was a song about robbing and selling drugs. His storytelling skills were unlike any other MC. Really, the last rapper to have storytelling skills like that before him was Slick Rick. Here's his mother, Valletta Wallace. Uh, many of the things that Christopher was portraying in his lyrics weren't true. Christopher was a great storyteller. You, you know, you'll be the first one to say that. And I'm sure many of the, the, the fans out there knew that Christopher was a great storyteller. That's why he's such an artist. That's why he was such a great artist. Mm-hmm. The things that my son, I'm sure, said about me, the things that I have and the wealth that I, we've accomplished, I wasn't dirt poor, mm-hmm. but I don't have a house right now in Florida. 
No minks? No minks. No well, I do have the mink. Okay, but... you got the egg? <laughs> no, I don't have the actor. I can't even drive. <laughs> to this day, I can't drive. I drove everybody around me crazy. But uh, the mink I have now, but right. when he spoke about it, I, I never had a mink. It was like Big had two personalities when you listen to his music. Some songs were fun. Others were deeply dark. Pac had that same energy, too, in his music. I asked Big's mother about the difference between Christopher Wallace and Biggie. He was an artist, and Christopher knows how to decipher that. I am the artist. I'm the son. I'm the friend. He knows that. When, he, when he's in my house, he's, he's the one of the most gentle, respected human being you can ever encounter. I went and I saw my son in concert. Oh, man. And he begged me. He literally begged me to come and see him. He said, Mom, you've never seen me perform. You've right. never seen me in concert. Right. Come and see me. And I went and I saw him. And I remember <laughs> I left the club at about 4 o'clock that morning. Mm-hmm. Um and he called me, said, did you enjoy yourself? I said, I enjoyed your performance, but trust me, I don't think I'll ever do it again. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a different but experience. It's a very different experience. But Christopher was just a different person mm-hmm. around me. Mm-hmm. I mean, you all know Notorious B.I.G., Biggie Small, mm-hmm. Big Papa. I knew Christopher, the warm, loving, generous son who calls me Mommy, mm-hmm. who calls me mom, mm-hmm. who calls me mother dearest when he's upset with me. Right. <laughs> because I'm sure you know the story of mother de- mommy right. dearest or mother right. dearest. Mm-hmm. He calls me mom dukes. And when he's very upset and wants to really tee me up, he calls me ma. Because he, <laughs> he knows I hate when he calls me ma. Right. Don't call me ma. You know, and that was Christopher. He was very funny, a darling and when he writes, when he's out there, he's a performer. He's, he was, that was his thing. That was his world. It was not my world. And he knew that. Mm-hmm. My son would never smoke a cigarette in front of me. Mm-hmm. My son would never use profanity in front of me. If he's in his room and someone is out there using even the word D-A-M-N, he will, mommy's out there. Ready to Die was out and getting a lot of positive feedback. The remix to Flavor in Your Ear was on every radio station. Puff, once again, the master marketer, saw what was happening and decided to do a big promotion to capitalize on that energy in the moment. He called it the Big Mac promotion. Bad Boy made a cassette. On one side was seven Craig Mack songs. On the other was seven big songs. And they placed this cassette in a replica of a McDonald's Big Mac sandwich box. They were both on fire at the time with the help of the remix. If you Google Big Mac Biggie promotion, you'll see a picture of them in a fast food restaurant with um, the Big Mac logo on everything. They hit the road together, causing a lot of excitement in every city. This was my second interview with Big and Craig Mack. It was a month after the release of Ready to Die, and Big was a star. Juicy was heating up. You'll hear a more confident Big talking about his album and his newfound success. You'll also hear about Craig Mack, who kept calling Puff, Puff Combs. You'll also hear the love of hip-hop history from both of them. This is October 14th, 1994. I got the boys, Biggie Smalls and Craig Mack. Uh, the clock by the penis. Uh-oh. Craig Mack. Yeah. Like a little respectful playboy, a.k.a. the bionic man. Okay, first of all, welcome yeah. to the, welcome to Philadelphia, of course. And, and, and I, I want to congratulate both of you brothers coming out at the same time and blowing the hell up all over the country. Yeah. Y'all, y'all records are making mad noise and both your albums are out right now. 
Craig Mack, you got Funk the World, and Biggie Smalls, you got Ready to Die, and Biggie... Project Funk the World. Oh, Project, I'm sorry, Project Funk the World. Now, Biggie, um, you was on the show a couple months ago, right before the album came out, now the album's out, and, and you know, you came and kicked it. How's it been so far? I mean, it's cool, you know what I'm saying, just being accepted and everybody knowing that I'm here now, you know what I'm saying? Before mm -hmm. I came down and, you know, I had a little song, you know, but my album wasn't completed, so... Everybody was still skeptical, but now you got a chance to really hear me pull out, you know, 17 cuts of what I do. Okay. All right. Well, definitely much, much props out to you, my man. I, I was chilling out in Atlanta at the Outcast uh, Gold Party, and you oh, and uh, yeah. Puffy was up on stage getting busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was kind of fly. And now, uh, Craig, man, you, you just came out of nowhere, man. Tell everybody how you, how did you how you got hooked up with. I just Puffy came Eddie. down to earth like a comet, and just boom hit this bad boy. But um, I got down with Puff. You know what I'm saying? Through my management company. Big up to my man Alvin Tony, Al B Productions and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? We um was chilling together out in the town called Wine Dance, you know what I'm saying? He was looking out for me and everything else. He knew I had rhyme skills. Right. So he brought me up to my man Puff Combs at a club called the Mecca. You know what I'm saying? And I met up with him and I grooved, I sat down with the brother and I kicked the freestyle rhyme for him. And the rhyme I kicked, you know what I'm saying? He was like, yo. You gotta do a joint with me um, at Mary J. Blige. Right. You know from the You Don't Have to Worry um, soundtrack from Who's the Man, the remix of it. Right. And I cranked a little joint up on there. Don't try to play me for the same, same, same. Last brother did it for the beat until his mom's came. Right, right. And um, after that, we just went to the studio, man. We started cranking out the rest of the albums. You know what I'm saying? I had a little piece of the album when I was out there shopping my deal and everything else. But you know what I'm saying? It really came together once I met. Puff Combs, a.k.a. the glass slipper for this Cinderella. Okay. All right. Well, you definitely blew up that, like, on the, like, right away. And on your album, you give props to, like, all the rappers from back in the day. So I give props to that. everybody who deserves my props, you know what I'm saying? And I look at the other rappers from back in the days as deserving my props. See, I started with this since, like, 1979. Right, 80, right. You know what I'm saying? And the only thing that I had to listen to was some brothers like Curtis Blow, Run DMC, LL, and all the brothers when they came out. Right. Um, Funky Four Plus One More. You know what I'm saying? Um, cool Herkin and they brought tapes. My uncles and them used to bring tapes. And them brothers cutting up in the parks and stuff out to Long Island and stuff where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And that's who, that was my upbringing. That's who, that's who was my inspiration. That's why I looked at. You know how, you know what I'm saying? You look at role models for stuff, you know, kids look at Jordan when they be wanting to play ball, you know what I'm saying, I looked at Run DMC and my uncles and them and all kinds of rappers and stuff like that back in the days for my role models. I and think we, I we all did that in the hip-hop nation, we, we all did, did. We saw running them come out on the stage with, with no the laces, right. we all wore no laces, right. you know right. what I'm saying, right. they definitely we had the Kango, we bought the Kango, we bought, we bought the Adidas suits. You know what I'm saying? We got with the, we got with the oh, rap program. Oh, yeah. you know and same saying? thing with you, Biggie, because in the beginning of your album, you sort of chronicle your life with hip-hop. No question, because that's what was happening. That's what I was listening to. Right. I was listening to Kenny Rogers. You heard some Kenny Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to the Sugar Hill Gang. All right, well, let's talk about this remix that you put together for Flavor in Your Ear. Ah. Now, that's the bomb. Now, now tell us, how did you hook no, all that no, up? No, 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 no,
that we need to just give a little bit more flavor right. than what we gave out before the album was really to be released before my next single. Right. You know what I'm saying? And brothers that was into what was going on as far as flavor is concerned, you know what I'm saying? They came down to the studio and they showed me love. You know what I'm saying? They got right. down the track with me. Because the track is all that. Big up to Easy Mo B for putting yeah, it down. Yeah, Easy Mo B is incredible, man. <laughs> man. You know what I'm saying? That's the, that's the best producer right. I know in about 52 states. And where he come from? You know what I'm saying? Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Crystal. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? L came right on down. He right. a, little, a little champagne bust over the bottom. You know what man, it was smooth, too. Before I took off. You so when he saying? was actually doing it in the studio, what was your reaction while he was doing I it? I was bugging. I was still in amazement that L, you know what I'm saying, came down and showed me the love he did. Right. You know what I'm saying? And L's my man for that. You know what I'm saying? I, I just want to say big up to L, big up to, to Biggie, Rampage, and Buster. You know what I'm saying? And, and for all of them showing me that love that they showed me. You know what I'm saying? Okay. That was my Christmas right there. Now, what do you fellas uh, want to say to some of the up-and-coming rappers? Because both of you guys had a little struggle before y'all came out. Look out. Came. Now, I want to say, <laughs> I wanna, on the real, on the real, you know what I'm saying, on the real, I ain't going to deny another brother his, you know what I'm saying? It's going to be tough out there. I ain't going to front. But stay 100% focused in what you're going to do. You know what I'm saying? That just applies to life in general. You know what I'm saying? No matter what you do, just stay 100% focused and mean what you say. You know what I'm saying? Go out there with determination. Don't let nothing stop you from achieving your goal. The earth is yours. Word up. Get up. Do your thing. Same thing, man. All I can tell you is keep banging. You know what I'm saying? Like Craig said, man, don't let nobody tell you, oh, you know, I don't think you can do this. Life, and, and for y'all, I, I don't know if Biggie means the same way I do. I look keep banging it like this, you know what I'm saying? If you got a brick wall presented in front of you, exactly. you know what I'm saying? Don't sit there and just give a couple of hammers to that wall and be like, oh, forget it. Forget it. You know what I'm saying? Keep banging at that wall because that wall will come down before you go down. Okay. You know what I'm saying? That's all I got to say. Like my man Biggie said, it's all good, baby, baby. Don't know, now you know. Now you know. Ready to Die went on to go gold two months after its September 1994 release. Following the Juicy single, they released Big Papa, which was a huge hit for Big, especially on the pop charts. Then they released a video for Warning, and Puff and him were in the video, which played on his street roots. The success of Juicy and Big Papa showed that Big could deliver mass appeal hits. However, similar to Method Man a year earlier, Puff realized that there wasn't anything else left on the album similar to those two songs, and he needed to put that remix hat on and come up with a masterpiece. It was the spring of 1995, nine months after the release of Ready to Die. Usually, that would be it for a rap album, but Puff had a plan. He had just released the first single from his new R&B female group, Total, and Big was on the song, Can't You See?, which was an instant hit, and Big was developing a pattern as the go-to rapper for rap R&B mashups. As with Puff's epiphany on M. Toomey's Juicy Fruit song being the blueprint for Juicy, he took the song Stay from the debut album of DeBarge, added in his new solo female artist, Faith Evans, to do the hook, and they came with the masterpiece, One More Chance, Stay With Me remix. 
Remember I told you to Google Method Man, All I Need, the original song. I want you to do the same for Big One More Chance, the original version. It was as hardcore as they come, graphic and explicit. Puff flipped the song and then got one of the best video directors at the time, Hype Williams, to do a star-studded video with a who's who of hip-hop and R&B stars. One More Chance was an even bigger song for Biggie, pushing Ready to Die to double platinum status. It was the biggest song in the summer of 1995. A year after its release, Ready to Die was a bona fide debut smash album, similar to the success Snoop had with Doggy Style a few years earlier. Big brought the East back with a vengeance. Puff then released Faith Evans on the heels of One More Chance, and her first single blew up that summer. In a shocking twist in the summer of 1995, Faith Evans and Biggie Smalls fell in love and got married within four days. Further down the line, Puff put Big on 112's first single, and that was a great launching pad for that group. He kept Biggie on the radio. Ready to Die was certified four times platinum. I love painting a picture of what was happening during that time. So I want to share another interview I did with Big. He would come to Philly all the time and do shows because Philly was like a second home and they could come and they could do a bunch of shows. They could do shows in Jersey. It was just really convenient. Shout out to my man, Big Scott from Camden, New Jersey. Scott was a local promoter and had a close relationship with Big and would do a bunch of shows with him in the Philadelphia area. This is from October of 1995. Biggie was with Scott and they randomly called me on air. You can hear the success in his voice. He had just put out Get Money from his group, Junior Mafia. He talked about his wife, Faith, and their success. They had literally been married for two months. They talked about his upcoming tour. This is October 6, 1995. Check it out. I was just talking to Biggie Smalls on the phone, but he got me on hold. Let me see if he still got me on hold. You know what I mean? Crazy hotel music. Hello? Yo, Big A. What up, player? What's up, dog? Ain't nothing. You coming to Philly, kid? Huh? You coming to Philly this weekend, right? Yeah, no doubt. Okay, well, what's going on with this party you supposed to be having? Trying to do something about Becky Jones up in the building. Ha <laughs> ha! You got to have it, huh? No doubt. Well, you're doing two shows. First one in Camden, right? Um, the first one is in Camden, Yeah, the first one is in Camden. We're going to get there. Probably between 11.30 and 12. Then we're going to go over to Philly. We're going to be at both shows, in and out, all night. Okay. You know, we're just going to be hanging out. We're going to be hanging, you know, hanging in Camden and Philly. You know, it's going to be an all-night thing at both locations. Now, Big, I got to congratulate you on all your success on Ready to Die. Thank you. And, of course, the Junior Mafia album, which is blowing up all over the place. Yeah. What's up next for Biggie, man? What's what's happening with you, man? What you working on? Well, we're about to go on this tour with Jodeci and Mary J. Blige and Naughty by Nature. Okay. Uh, we start that on the 12th. And we're working on Lil' Kim's solo album. Yeah, Lil' Kim. Kim got some skills, yeah. kid. Your album should be dropping like in April. Okay. My album should be dropping like July 4th. Okay. Oh, you coming out next summer? Oh, yeah, no doubt. Okay. Well, that's cool. So how you like things right now? How you like living right now, man? Man, it's tight, so, you know, just making money and it's got the family with me just doing it, you know? Okay. And congratulations on, on your wife's success. Oh, yeah. She blowing up out the spot. How's it feel to be married and both of you got platinum and gold records coming through the door? How's that feel? It's lovely, man. It's all good, man. Okay. 
It's all good. So we'll check you out Sunday night at Escape in Camden. And then we're going to check you out here in Philly. And you want all the ladies to, to wear them PJs, right? No, no question, no question. Fellas, too, you know what I'm saying? Make the ladies feel comfortable. You know, if they coming through and they negligee, I'm sure they want to see y'all in y'all pajamas and boxes or whatever, you know. Nobody don't want to get rubbed up with no jeans and Tim's at no pajama I didn't know this at the time, but as I learned more, things were very tense for Big around the time that I had that conversation, and it was because of Tupac. So let me take you back to November 1994, almost a year earlier from this interview that I just played for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Pac was shot in the lobby of a studio where he was going to meet Big, Puff, and a bunch of other industry folks. This was the day before the verdict in a rape case Pac was facing in New York. Pac and Big were close. Pac had come out before Big and had more experience in the industry and took a liking to Big. I mentioned this earlier about Suge and Puff, but initially the energy between Death Row and Bad Boy was good, but very competitive. But after Pac was shot, then convicted, then sentenced to jail in New York State, he thought that Big and Puff set him up. He even did a Vibe magazine article where he basically called them out. It didn't help that a month after Pac was shot in December of 1994, when he put Big Papa out, the B-side was a song called Who Shot Ya? And everyone speculated that this was a shot at Tupac. In the Pac All Eyes on Me movie, shout out to my man Benny Boom, a Philly Temple Cat, for directing that joint. There was a scene where Pac hears the song and he's in jail and he puts it all together. Tupac was incensed that this supposed friend would do that to him. Biggie and Puff continuously denied it, but Pac wasn't convinced. In the All Eyes on Me movie, there was a scene where Big warned Pac about the people he was hanging around with in New York. In the winter of 1995, Pac released his last Interscope album, Me Against the World, as he stood behind bars with the number one album in America, which at the time, no artist ever had a number one record that was in jail at the same time. Then, later that year, at the Source Awards in New York, the simmering tension boiled over. I was there and remember how weird it felt. The energy in the room was just bad from the start. This was the Source Awards that Big would own because of his debut album. He was reaping the benefits of Ready to Die. Death Row also had a successful year as well. They won Soundtrack of the Year for Above the Rim. That was the movie Pac was filming when the rape happened in New York. Suge gets on stage to accept the award, thanks God, tells Tupac to keep his heads up, then throws a subliminal shot at Puff that would instantly change the hip-hop industry for the worst. He basically said, if you don't want your executive producer dancing in all the videos, probably just calling out Puff. The crowd did not like what Suge had to say, and the tension in the room went from 5 to 10. Then Dr. Dre wins producer of the year. As John Singleton, when he announced Dr. Dre, he says, "Uh uh-oh, we may have some trouble. Right when he says it, the crowd boos. Dre comes up with Snoop and Dre was actually pretty cool. Like Dre wasn't really involved. Like Dre's always kind of been that way. But Snoop, when I told you it went from five to 10, that 10 went to 15 as Snoop was like, uh, the East Coast don't love death row. And he challenged the people from the East Coast. It was not a pretty sight. And again, you can go to YouTube and see all of this. Then Craig Mack wins single of the year for flavor in your ear. He shouts out the East Coast. And as he walks off the stage, the crowd chants East Coast, East Coast. Again, go to YouTube. You can see all of this. So after the Source Awards, the tension was thick. Thankfully, there wasn't social media like today because a lot of people were talking. 
there were a lot of industry events around the country where Bad Boy and Death Row camps would get together and organizers would, would frantically try to keep them apart. Then, a few months after the Source Awards drama, Suge bailed out Pac and signed him to Death Row. And Pac, fresh out of jail, had a bullseye on Puffy and Big and the East Coast. He hated them with a passion. And any chance he had to call them out, he did. As he was recording the album All Eyes on Me, he had Faith Evans in the studio in L.A. because she recorded a song with him. She publicly stated that nothing happened between them other than recording. But in June of 1996, Pac put out a disc record called Hit Him Up, where he said he slept with Faith Evans. In the last interview that I played with Big, he had talked about putting an album out in July of 1996. He obviously didn't meet that deadline, but his good friend Jay-Z released his album the last week of June in 1996. And Big did a track on that album called Brooklyn's Finest. In that song, Big addressed the Tupac comment about his wife because she was pregnant at the time with young Christopher. He says, if Faith has twins, she probably have two pox. Get it? Two pox. He took the funny way out, and that song got a lot of attention. Jay-Z blew up in 1996 and was the newest New York rapper to have success all over the country. A few months later, on September 7th, Pac was in Las Vegas for a Mike Tyson fight. And he got into an altercation in the hotel lobby and was shot that night and later died on Friday the 13th, 1996. His death was one of the first shockwaves to hip hop. I would say Easy es death to AIDS was a shockwave, but this was different. This was just a violent death of one of the biggest rappers in the country who was in jail, who had a lot of controversy around him. There was so much speculation as to who shot Tupac. Biggie went dark. As he was in the studio during this time recording Life After Death. On March 1st, 1997, Bad Boy dropped Hypnotize, Biggie's first single on his new double album, Life After Death. The reaction was immediate. This was another hit. Big was back and he went to the West Coast for a week to film the video and do some promotion because the album was coming out on March 25th. The Soul Train Awards were also happening that week and Big presented an award to Tony Braxton. This was March 8th, 1997. After the award show, they went to the after party. At some point during the after party, the fire marshal shut down the party, which is no surprise in L.A. That happens all the time. Big and entourage leave in tow in a bunch of SUVs. As he greeted some women who were on the corner who recognized him, a car pulls up and unloads on the front passenger seat. Big was severely wounded, rushed to the hospital where he died. It was a shocking turn of events for the hip-hop community. The two biggest artists dead within six months after one of the greatest years in the history of the genre. I told you 1996 was just an amazing musical year for hip-hop. DJ Mr. C on Big's death. Well, I know for me, man, when I heard that B.I.G. passed away, man, I was devastated. I'll never forget. I got a call the morning of March 9th um, by a good friend of mine named Fred Bugs a.k.a. Bugsy, legendary uh, air personality in New York City. And he called me at home and said, yo, see, man, you know, I'm hearing some things about Biggie and you need to check it out and see if it's true. And um, I started trying to call around the people. And um, once I got the final kind of confirmation that he passed away, man, I couldn't even sleep. Um, the only thing I can think of at that time was to go to Hot 97, which I was on the air at the time at Hot 97. So I said, let me let me go to Hot 97 and let me see what's going on. And I'll never forget, like when I went to Hot 97 the morning of March 9th and uh, driving around Brooklyn to get to Manhattan to get to Hot 97, the whole Brooklyn was quiet. I'd never seen Brooklyn like that. I'd never seen it 
to where nobody is outside, nobody is in the streets doing something, something going. On. I didn't, I didn't see a bum, I didn't see a crackhead, I didn't see, no, I didn't see nobody going. On. I didn't see nothing, and that's the first time I've ever seen Brooklyn like that, where it was just silence and nobody outside. And t- my trip going to Hot ninety seven that morning, that's what I witnessed. And when I arrived at Hot 97, Angie Martinez, another legendary air personality, was on the air, along with um, Lisa Evers, who, um, you know, who's, uh does a lot of news here in New York City. Um, they both was already on the air, kind of, you know, trying to be the people on the air to give, you know, to just to, to console the city. And, you know, I started getting on the air with Angie Martinez and Lisa Evers and we started talking to listeners and people was just crying and just bawling out, crying on the telephone. And some of the celebrities called up like Swiss Beats, Buster Rhymes. I remember them two specifically calling and so many other celebs called. I can't remember, but it was just a sad, sad day and time in, in uh, particularly in New York City. Um, it took me it, it literally took me at least three to five months to kind of try to slowly but surely get back on my feet and try to get back into a flow. I was, I was devastated and the hip hop community just took it. It took it, took it very, very hard, you know? And it was just like, especially like in New York, because, you know, Biggie was our champion in New York. He was the one that kind of brung New York, AKA East coast hip hop back to our side. You understand what I'm saying? And, and when we lost big man, it was just, it was, it was devastating. And, um, even to this day, it still hits home. It's still as sharp as it was when he first passed away back in 1997. It's it's something that, you know, it's just like the people that kind of live through um, when Martin Luther King passed away. It's, it's you know, and I don't want to compare that to Biggie, but I, I mean, the impact that it had on hip hop when Biggie passed away, it was a huge, huge loss. I remember myself rushing to the radio station to jump on there. It was a Sunday morning and I had been up late the night before. I get to the radio station and I was angry and embarrassed for the culture. Why did this happen? How do we get to this point? How do we explain this to the younger generation? What was the message in all of this? At the time, I wasn't full-time in radio, and I had a job on the side. My position was working for the criminal court systems in Philadelphia. I was a criminal justice major at Temple, and I did that on purpose because the entertainment business, radio business is just not, you know, I wanted to have something else to fall back on. So I had this job during the day, and one of the programs that they had in Philly was the Youth Advocate Program. It was specifically for young people that had been arrested. They would kind of be on house arrest and only be able to go out with approval from their advocate. So you were like an instant probation officer, but not with all the powers of a probation officer. Um, it was our job to work with these kids and keep them on the right path until their case was uh until their case went through the court. I had just started working in this position. I had about five kids under my supervision. One of the kids who was really troubled, I had him come to the radio station with me a few weeks after Big's death to help me put together a special show I was doing on Big around his new album. I kind of felt like maybe if I, I couldn't get through to this kid, but maybe I could get through to him through Big. It was tough to talk about this because I really didn't have an answer. Here I am trying to help kids that are in the criminal justice system, trying to like keep them on a straight and narrow. And they look at their biggest rappers and they say, man, they get murdered. And it's just like me. I can't, I'm not going to live. It was just really hard for me as a young man. I mean, I was in my twenties and I was still trying to figure out life as well. And this kid had a lot of um, anger issues 
and problems walking away from confrontation without it becoming physical. He was a really great kid, except his temper would get the best of him. I remember having conversations with him about Big and his story and where he came from and what he achieved up to that point. I can't say that the kid was moved by the situation in the moment. And maybe that's the lesson to us all. So many families all over the world have to deal with a loss of a relative due to senseless violence. And in many cases, still to this day, when everything is investigated by the police and you find out the real roots of what happened and it would be over something so stupid, something so trivial. So in this interview that I had with Miss Wallace, I asked her, what could she say to other families struggling with such a loss? The feeling that they're feeling, nobody else is feeling that pain. No one else is feeling my pain. But all I can tell them out there is to be strong, stick to their family. Family and friends are the best support. Anything that's beautiful, try to focus on it and never, ever lose their faith in God. Wow. Because that's what's keeping me today, and I know it will keep them. It's been 26 years since we lost the late, great, notorious B.I.G. And Pac. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Backstory Podcast. Now, as promised, I want to play this interview for you. I did two interviews with Tupac. And I can't find the first interview I did, but I will tell you this Tupac story real quick. I met Tupac when he was with Digital Underground because when they came to Philly, I remember this show. You know, Pac grew up in Baltimore, New York. Like he wasn't, uh, he was living in the West Coast, but he had East Coast roots. And he was a networker. He just wanted to connect with people. So I remember meeting him backstage at a concert that Digital Underground was on. I want to say that it was the NWA tour, but I'm not sure. But it was a tour in the early 90s. And he went solo. I knew Money B because Money B had family in Philadelphia and Money B was um, a part of Digital Underground. So he signed the Interscope Records and I got to shout out my good friend, Rob Plummer, who was now a baseball agent. But at the time he was in law school at the University of Virginia. And on the side, he was a college promoter for all uh, for major labels. He was like an independent promoter for all the major labels. And he called me. He was like, yo, I got Tupac. You know, Interscope just signed him. Can we do an interview? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know who Tupac is or whatever. And he comes to the radio station and we do this interview. Then we go get something to eat. And I never forget this. Now, he wasn't a superstar yet. He was just in Digital Underground. And you can only see the videos on MTV Raps or The Box if you had The Box. And we go to this shopping center to get something to eat. And he just was a magnet for people. People didn't know who he was, but they were just coming to him like he was a star, which I was like, wow, this is this is actually pretty cool. And so we did the interview or whatever, and I cannot find that interview. However, a couple of months later, Juice came out. And, you know, back then we didn't have the Internet. So you just didn't know when things were happening. You may have heard about a movie or whatever, but all of a sudden you go to the movies and you see this preview. So literally December of 1991, you started to see trailers for Juice. I was like, oh, wow. Now, when I interviewed him several months before that, it was earlier in the fall of uh, 91. He never mentioned that he had a movie coming out. He just never told me. So I tracked them down. And the night that Juice came out, he gave me a call. And this is that interview. Check it out. Movie. No, I wanted to be on the down low. I didn't want to be like, you know, I did this movie and I'm all that. I wanted to be on my own merit. You know what I'm saying? Oh, okay. And they like it. You know what I'm saying? I didn't want to be all on my own. 
<laughs> Solid, man. So do you have any uh, other uh, other movies or uh, anything, any other projects that you're working on? Well, I'm working on producing a lot of people. I'm producing a group called Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. I'm producing a girl named Mister. Mm -hmm. Besides that, you know, I'm looking for the new part. Not, not, not to mention you have a brand new uh, song out with Digital Underground called No Nose Job, right? No Nose Job, Digital Underground's new single. My new single coming out, Brenda's Got a Baby. Brenda's Got a Brand New Baby. Right now, Tupacalypse Now. Basically, I'm just trying to, you know... Hang in there. Why don't you explain to us what exactly the, the song is about? Well, I was on the set doing the movie, Juice, and uh, I was reading a story about this teenage girl, 12 years old, got pregnant, had a baby, and when I read about it, it, it the story was deeper than that. So listen to the song and you see how deep it really is. The juice. All the juice. So, so let me ask you a question, man. What, was it fun playing a bad guy in, was, uh, in Juice? It was the best, because, you know, the good guy got to, you know, keep up that image. Being the bad guy... You know what I'm saying? I got to really, like, make it my own. And, like, that that gave me a chance to leave a bigger impression than if I was a good guy. So, I, as I looked at the movie, I could tell you ad-libbed a lot. A lot. Like, like when you got my man in the alley, you ad-libbed on that, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When I him up when I, when I entered the gun, yeah. I was telling him, I was telling Ernest, today, it's not like in the old days when you shoot somebody one time. People survived that. Uh-huh. This shit was really ruthless. He was, yeah. like, straight-up gangster. So, he would see right. his clip like a gangster would. Yeah. Riverside. Riverside. Yeah, Riverside. That's something that wasn't in the script, but that's something me from being from the streets. Well, there you go. As a bonus, my uh, interview with Tupac, The Night Juice, came out. Interesting how he tells the story about Brenda has a baby. Like, he tells that story. Like, it's, you know, he was just an awesome guy, man. And um, the last time I saw him was 1995, the summer of 1995. I never forget this. He had done a show at this club in Philly called Lumberjack. That was the name of the club. I was hosting it, and it was a Saturday night. And I hadn't seen him in, you know, a while, you know, since he, he, he was like a big star at that point. And I gave him a hug and I never forget he had a bulletproof vest on. And I was like, Pac, it's like that. And he was like, it's like that. I was, that was just like, I'm so far from crime and violence. Like I know about it, but I'm just didn't, I just didn't come up like that. And nobody had bulletproof anything at that time, but Pac was wearing a bulletproof vest. And I thought that was like, wow, you know, it was sad that he, uh, he passed and, uh, that was tough for hip hop, but we survived. Hopefully we'll all learn from this. So earlier you heard my interview with Craig Mack and the Notorious B.I.G. when they were doing the Big Mac promotional tour. A few years later, right after Craig Mack came out and then Big had his tremendous success, Craig Mack kind of fell off with the label and he parted ways with Puff. And I had a chance to interview him a little bit after that happened, and he was now an independent artist. So he since has passed away, and I wanted to share this clip from this interview I did with uh, Craig Mack. And it was actually pretty inspirational. So check this out. We all I got Craig by. Mack. Craig, what's the deal, kid? What's the deal, brother? What's up, Philly? Welcome back, man. You know what I'm saying? No doubt. You know what I'm saying? I've been up in this piece for a minute. No you doubt. Now, now, Craig. But it's all good, honey. Still looking tell, her, tell everybody what's going on, man. What's, what happened between Project Funk the World and now? What's going on with Craig Mack? A lot of people want to well, know what the happened. The album is coming out June 24th. Operation Get Down. Hot to death. You know what I'm saying? The album is fat. You know what I'm saying? 15 butters on it, all crazy. Name of the label is Street Life. You know what I'm saying? And we here to wake it up. You know what I'm saying? And that's all there's to it. Okay. Jogging my style. Y'all done heard a piece of that. You know what I'm saying? A little taste of uh, some of the joints of the album, like style and everything else. You know what I'm saying? Album is hot, and I'm just ready to get out here and kill this summer. Okay. So it feels good to get back on the scene? Oh, no doubt. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Now, a lot of people want to know what happened, man. You left Bad Boy, and now you're doing your own thing. What's, what's up with that? Me and Puff had a, um, you know what I'm saying, a discussion. 
and we left everything as mutual. You know what I'm saying? It's mm -hmm. time for now. You know, him, he's doing his thing. I'm, I'm about to start doing my thing. Okay. You know okay. what I'm saying? That's how we do it. So everything's you know love, love. Oh, everything is mad love. You know what I'm okay. saying? They still cool each other, still kicking back and forth. You know what I'm saying? All good, you know? So good. So, Craig, why don't you tell him? Because a lot of people don't know about the struggle you went through just to get down back in the day. I went through struggles like Kizzy. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> well, we don't even know. I was, I was walking around in Florida heavens out this motherfucker. <laughs> nah, but um, the most, the, the best thing I can tell you to do is, you know what I'm saying, everybody has their own, you know what I'm saying, story of a struggle. I mean, you can bring every rap artist in here and have a story about, right. you know what I'm saying, they struggle and dudes. You know what I'm saying? So realize that dudes are all part of just... You know what I'm saying? Whatever you want to do. You want to be a doctor, you got to pay dues and be a doctor. That's you know what I'm saying? This is the process you got to go through. But well, I, will, I will say this for, uh, for uh, upcoming rappers and MCs and singers and whoever you want to be. Just make sure that you make your music for the people. You understand what I'm saying? Make it for the masses. Make it for the audience to enjoy. And tell them why you just said that. Well, because it's entertainment, you're in a business. You right. understand what I'm saying? And this is a business. If you want to make songs for yourself, you could go around and make demos all day, and you and your boys can ride around the car all day listening to it. But if you want to make songs, and you want to go out there and have a career and a long longevity in the career, then you have to make songs that cater to the people and cater to the masses. And so make your songs for the general. You know what I'm saying? And make them hot. All right, so there you have it. Uh, Craig Mack, R.I.P. to Craig Mack. Uh, he died at the age of 46 from congestive heart failure. And I wanted to share that interview. And it's kind of, I'm ending this on a sad note. But, uh, you know, Tupac and Craig Mack and the Notorious B.I.G. are all no longer with us. And they all died in their prime. And I wanted to share Biggie's story, but I also wanted to share a little bit about Craig Mack and, of course, Tupac. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, DJ Kid Capri. If you remember the Sauce Awards, when it happened, when Shook said what he said, I was the announcer on the television. I was also sitting in the fifth row when it all went down. So the energy in that room felt like something was going to pop off at any time. The Backstory Podcast with Kobe Kolb is an Urban One Incorporated Reach Media Pod is Good production, hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Kobe Kolb, edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC. On Instagram, get the backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed. For sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast. <laughs>